you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John, we're going to continue our study of 1 John, beginning in chapter 2. We took a brief hiatus last week as we celebrated the resurrection in 1 Peter. But we are back in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, I got all the way um, through 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 last time. I thought I could get through more, um, but I did not. But we are at 1 John chapter 2. We're going to actually read... Uh, Verses 1, let's read verses 1 through 6. So if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So... Let's talk about a topic today that I think arises within all of us, and especially when we see somebody um, or we are invited or we hear about the loss of someone in our lives and we we have cause to go to a funeral. It's not a happy time. It's not an easy time. But as a Christian, as we go to a funeral, what is, and this is a rhetorical question, so don't shout out, okay? All right, so what is the question that we have in our mind when we hear that someone has passed away? immediately we go, were they in Christ as a believer, right? Were they in Christ? And I will say that there have been so many times in the last, you know, 20, 22 years of ministry where I go to a funeral and I just don't know, especially as a, as a chaplain with the Air Force. I get, I've done many funerals for, for people I do not know. And, and what has occurred is there is very little assurance of salvation for the person that is departed. And when you go to a funeral where there is a lack of assurance, or there's assurance that they were not in Christ, there is great grief in your soul. To the point where there is, um, I mean, a funeral is a funeral at that point, right? There's, there's mourning, and there's, there's little hope, and there's great sadness. And then there's... Um, and what that does in the midst of our assurance of our salvation or, or their assurance of their salvation, it makes us reflect upon our own assurance of salvation. It makes us think, am I really in Christ? Do I really believe? Do I really believe in all these things, all the promises of God? Am I really a child of God? Am I really loved? I mean, I've done some really, I mean, I'm, I'm saying I, like we, you know, like we, we've done terrible things. Can God truly forgive us and love us? And, and is this true? Am I saved? And, and I, I will say that I've had young men and women and even older men and women come into my office on the verge of tears because of the anxiety that they have within their heart regarding the question, am I saved? That's what 1 John chapter 2 is talking about today. 
this particular passage is dealing with this uh, in a particular way. Look at verse 3. Now, we talked about verses 1 and 2 two weeks ago, and, it, and it's regarding the, the wrath of God, which is assuaged, placated, and, and um, done because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's the propitiation, peace with God, um, sort of an exhausting of his wrath. But we know this. But in, in verse 3, he's, John is dealing with this issue. And by this, and he's speaking back to this idea of the propitiation of God. By this, we know that we have come to know. We know that we have come to know him. So there was this, this question that John, uh, again, John is writing as an apostle, and he is old at this point, right? I mean, John is, you know, well into his 80s writing this, and he's writing this, and even he begins this, this passage in chapter 2 with my little children, and he can say that because he's the last apostle. And he's an older man, and he's trying to give his last bit of wisdom to, to the church, to the church where false teachers are coming in, and they're teaching things about Jesus. They're teaching things about the gospel that are not true. And so John is trying to right the ship. He's trying to bolster faith. He's trying to give words of encouragement. And, and there's this, this aspect of what John is trying to do. He's trying to say, these are the last things that I'm going to say to you. Please take them to heart. Please understand that these things that I am giving to you are essential. And I so want my children in the faith to be walking in faith with you, with the Lord Jesus. And so he says, I want you to know that you have come to know. Now, there's a little, um, there's, there's some tension here within the scriptures, right? Because if, you, if you're reading, uh, let's say you're reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, you could get sort of chills down your spine as you read this. Matthew chapter 7 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." When you look at that and you go, like, these guys are prophesying, they're throwing out demons. I mean, look at all that's going on. And Jesus says, I didn't know you, get away from me. And then how do you um, deal with that when, you know, in Romans chapter 8, you know, you read this, for I, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that one we go, I'm good with that one, right? Like, I, that's the one, you know, like, nobody, nobody, just so you know, that I'm aware of, um, has ever gotten a tattoo of Matthew chapter 7, verse 23. You workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. But there are people who would get Romans 8, so that they're reminded of the promise of God in the midst of their lives. And so, you know, even, like, say, John's chapters, you know, the Apostle John, the, the work of John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37, you know, we read that one and, and we take great comfort in that. We read John, chapter 6, verse 37. Let me just read it so um, I don't butcher it. Um, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or we think about John, chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. In the midst of the good shepherd, he says, you know, all that the Father gives to me, you know, I will hold and the Father holds me. So there's this double lock that happens in John chapter 10, verse 28. 
If the Father's got me and Jesus has got me, I'm good. And yet there's this, there's these issues of assurance of salvation that we have up that well within our soul. And so, so what do we do with this? And John is writing right now in, in, you know, in, in this letter, and he's saying that we know that we have come to know him because it's a good doctrine to know that you're assured of your salvation. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the preservation of saints. I, I would say that once you are saved, you are always saved, you know. But I do think that assurance of salvation, assurance of salvation goes up and down in the midst of our lives at times. There are times where we feel very close to God. And then there are other times where we feel very distant from God and we begin to ask questions, Lord, is this true? What's going on? And our assurance can falter and waver and go up and down. And so, so what do we do, right? What do we do? Well, you know, let, let's, let's look and see how we know this. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So the first part is this. Like, we know that we have come to know him. Assurance of our salvation is true for us when we keep his commandments. And whose commandments? God's commandments. Not just the letters written in red in our Bibles, but all the commandments of God that he, he gives to us. That we keep his commandments. Now, now keep... Is, does not mean that we keep them in perfection. It does not mean that we are sinless. Because I know about you and I know about me that we are still sinners, right? Every day, in thought, word, and deed, we fail. We just fail. So we're not talking about sinless perfection, but we're talking about keeping them. And, and, and this, this Greek word keep, it can mean keep or to protect or to guard. And so we're guarding, keeping, trusting it, and obeying these commandments within our heart and soul. So we look at the commandments of God and we go, okay, these are what uh, I'm meant to do. So, so good works, and I want you to think about this, good works and obedience are a condition, or um, the good works, and so I don't want us to be confused, I just confused myself here for a second because I wrote my quote down wrong. But good works and obedience are not a condition for our salvation, but they are a characteristic of our salvation. Does that make sense? We do not work good works and obey the Lord in order to be saved. However, if you trust and believe in Jesus, it will be characteristic of your life that you produce good works in accordance with your faith. Okay? Let's be clear on that. All right? It's not a condition for salvation, but it is a characteristic of salvation. That's what James speaks about. That's what, you know, the perfecting of our faith. You know, this is a, um, a big deal in the life of a believer. So how do we see this, this idea of these two things um, being connected um, together? Well, um, think about, like, let's, let's go over to um, 2 Peter for a second. If you have your Bible, go over to 2 Peter. Just kind of keep, um, actually, it's just a couple pages over. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse Three, you know, it says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So we've been given all things for, um, for the building up of, of ourselves. Look, go down to verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
Did you notice how we started that? Make every effort. The faith that we have in Christ leads us to obedience and love for His commands. And if you jump down here to um, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's this idea that we are to confirm our calling and our election into his family, to confirm our adoption, to confirm our faith in him. So to be, to be wrestling with and, and to obey. Now that's the effort that we place there. Now, as we see this, let's go back to First John chapter 2. I want you to see what it continues to say. It continues to say, whoever says. Now, whoever says is um, an idiom that John uses um, about false doctrine. And, he, and we talked about that in 1 John chapter 1. When he says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Essentially, what he's saying is, you may have had a mountaintop experience. At one point in your life, you had some sort of experience where you're like, I know that, that God loves me and I'm saved. But if you don't keep his commandments, then you don't know him. That's what he's saying. That your faith will produce works. Okay? I want you to know that. Now, in the midst of the assurance of our salvation, as we are growing in our faith, as we are working on obeying the commandments, we begin to see that we, not, we don't think of the commandments as you know, as, as as burdensome, but rather they're a delight to us. Here's an example. I remember um, thinking that you know honoring the, the Sabbath or honoring the Lord's Day, you know, as as a child was like, why do I have to do that? You know, like that just seems burdensome to my soul. That I should have to go to church, have to go to Sunday school, and then I should you know do some other stuff and why and back when i was growing up there were still blue laws were just dying back then and certain stores were closed and or, or i mean let's be real for a second how many of you get frustrated when you're traveling on sunday and chick-fil-a is closed right and get upset you're like man this isn't right like chick-fil-a should not be closed on sunday and yet what they're trying to do is they're trying to honor the sabbath and as we, as we grow in faith, we recognize that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is meant for us, is meant to, so that we can rest, so that we can renew our covenant love for God, so that we can sing and be with our brothers and sisters. And it should be the culmination of our week, the best part of our week. I mean, this right now should be a foretaste of heaven. When we partake of communion in a little bit, it should be an appetizer for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And so all of a sudden your perspective has changed. And so to obey the fourth commandment, which is you know, to honor the Lord's Day, you go, well, sure, I want to honor the Lord's Day. Certainly I want to go and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Certainly I want to take of communion. Certainly I want to sing. And I want to sing about all that Christ has given me. And I, I want to confess my sins and, and be assured of my pardon. Again, the assurance of pardon in the midst of our service is to bolster your faith so that you know that you are saved. And so that we need that. I mean, that's when the commandments become a delight to us. And we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. But, but if you say, I know Him, meaning that I know Jesus, but I do whatever I want to do because I'm a law unto myself, you don't 
really know Him. If you are making up your own Bible and ascribing faith to it rather than to the eternal, infallible, inerrant rule for faith and practice, which is our Scriptures found in your Old and New Testaments, then, then you don't know Jesus. Think about this one. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Many of us are very familiar with this. This is the Great Commission passage. Matthew chapter 28. You know, this is the, the mandate to the church, uh, at least in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, turn over there. Um, I want you to see this, because many of us quote this, but we don't quote the whole thing. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, I'm in verse 16, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all your Bibles and the Gospel of Matthew right there, right? Now there's another verse. So not only are we called to make disciples, but we are called to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There is something about faith and obedience that are inextricably linked together within the Christian faith. But we don't want to talk about that because oftentimes we feel as if people will get the impression that you have to earn your salvation. Now here, hear me. I wish I could jump up and down a little higher than I can because I'm getting old. But here's the deal. You can't earn your salvation. You can't. You cannot. There's no way. But once you are in faith, then you can produce works in accord with true saving faith. And that builds your assurance found in verse 3. We know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. We're perfecting our faith. But whoever, in verse 5, but whoever keeps His word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. There's this idea that, that... the, the, the love of God is being perfected. It's being perfected as we keep His Word. By this, we may know that we are in Him. If we keep His Word, if we obey His commandments, then we know that we are in Christ. I mean, that's similar to um, when we think about uh, Luke chapter 6, where it says, "...for no good tree bears bad fruit." Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. So the question for us is, you know, when we look at our life, when we look at um, the works that we have, the obedience to His commands, are we grapes or bramble bushes? And if you don't know, bramble bush is bad, grapes good, okay? You know, we all want to be grapes. We don't want to be bramble bushes. Now, as we think about this, um, our our confession actually has uh, a whole chapter devoted to this. I mean, our church believes in the Westminster Standards. I mean, that it's it's a good summary of our faith. But in chapter 18 of the Standards, it says this. You know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, I'll read out of the modern version because I'd rather. Um, It says... um, Although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and fleshly presumptions that they are in God's favor and in a state of salvation, this hope of theirs will perish. Nevertheless, those who truly believe on the Lord Jesus, love Him sincerely, and strive to live in all good conscience before Him, 
may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, a hope that shall never make them ashamed. Now, when we think about that, um, now, a couple of chapters later in 18.3, it says this, this infallible assurance, okay, this infallible assurance that Jesus loves me does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and contend with many difficulties before he partakes of it. Which means that you don't get assurance right when you believe. Now, some, maybe some people do, but not everybody does. Assurance grows over time. Okay, So your assurance of salvation will grow over time. And, and here's what it, it says, um, and I think this is really, really good. Yet because he is enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given to him by God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, attain this assurance of salvation by a proper use of the ordinary means. It is therefore the duty of everyone to be very diligent in making certain that God has called and chosen him. By such diligence, his heart may grow in peace and joy. Now, this is the part, like, so if you have assurance of salvation, if you know that you are loved, then you will have um, that peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and love and thankfulness to God and strength and cheerfulness in the duties which obedience to God requires. So that's interesting. So as our assurance grows, our strength and cheerfulness in the duties which obedience to God requires, the proper fruits of this assurance. Thus it is far from inclining men to carelessness. Now, the divines wrote that because back then, the Roman Catholics were saying, we don't believe in assurance. And they were fearful that if someone had assurance, they would go out and live however they wanted to live and do whatever they wanted to do. And so the Puritans, the Westminster divines, were saying, no, if you truly are in Christ, then you will obey, and you will obey in such a way that there will be strength in your obedience, and there will be a cheerfulness in the duties which obedience to God requires. Now here's the, um, the next section says, this true believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways. Um, and I think that this is, this is where we are. I'm not talking about the preservation of our souls, our eternal souls, but I'm talking about our worldly assurance that we're saved is what I'm talking about. J.C. Ryle, um, again, one of my heroes, says this about assurance. Um, he says that, brethren, it is a very serious question and ought to raise us in all great searchings of our hearts. Few certainly of all the sheep of Christ ever seem to reach this blessed spirit of assurance. Many comparatively believe, but few are persuaded. Many comparatively have saving faith, but few that glorious confidence which shines forth in our texts. Now why is this so? Why is a thing which John and Peter talk about being a positive duty, but why is assurance of salvation, the assured hope, so rare? He gives us a couple reasons. Um, let me go over a couple of these. So why do we have such a struggle with assurance of salvation? Let me go over a couple of them. One, um, Ryle says this, and I believe this is true, is that we have a defective view of the doctrine of justification. Again, the, the view of the doctrine of justification is this, is that, is that we are... Um, it is a work of God's grace where we are pardoned from all of our sins. And God views us in His sight as righteous in Christ, as 
That was interesting. That was really interesting. I, I wasn't ending. You know, I mean, that, that wasn't like, there, were, there was no mood music or anything like that. So God pardons us from all of our sins, views us as righteous in Christ only because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus on our behalf. And we receive that through faith. Now, this justification, here's what he says. That justification is a thing entirely outside of us and nothing is needful on our part but simple faith. And that the weakest believer is a fully justified as the strongest. They appear to forget sometimes, and this is why he says this, about our justification. They appear to forget sometimes that we are saved and justified as sinners and only as sinners and that we never can attain to anything higher if we live to the age of Methuselah. Redeemed sinners, justified sinners, renewed sinners, doubtless we must be, but sinners, sinners always to the very last. They seem to expect that a believer may sometime in his life be in a measure free from corruption and attain to a kind of inward perfection and not finding this angelic state of things in their own hearts, they at once conclude there must be something wrong, and they go mourning all their days and are oppressed with fears that they have no part or lot in Christ. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, if you or any believing soul here desires assurance and has not got it, go and ask yourself, first of all, if you are sound in the faith. Here's the deal. I mean, John, 1 John talks about this. We're always going to be sinners. But there are times when our sins are so grievous that we go, how can I be forgiven? How can I be saved? How can I be a Christian if I continue to think these things, do these things, or say these things? Now, I know I'm not preaching to the choir here, okay? I know that. Because there are times in your life you go, man, I'm pretty bad. Now, if there are times in your life where you go, I'm pretty good, you're pretty bad. Just want you to know that, okay? You're going to be a sinner, but don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Another reason, another common cause that Ryle says, he says this, it's slothfulness about growth in grace. Just being lazy about our growth in grace. He says, I suspect many believers hold dangerous and unscriptural views on this point. Many appear to me to think that once converted, they have little more to attend to. That a state of salvation is a kind of easy chair in which they may just sit still, lie back, and be happy. They seem to imagine that grace is given to them and that they may enjoy it, and they forget that it is given to be used and employed like a talent. Such people lose sight of the many direct injunctions to increase, to grow, to abound more and more, to add to our faith and the like. And in this do-little condition of mind, I never marvel that they miss assurance. Brothers and sisters, and get this, there is an inseparable connection between assurance of salvation and diligence in the Christian faith. Assurance often, most likely, will come in the midst of diligence in pursuing Christ. Give diligence, says Peter, to make your calling and election sure. I desire, says Paul, that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. It is the diligent soul, says the proverb, that shall be made fat. There is much truth in the maxim of the Puritans, saving faith comes by hearing, but faith of assurance comes not without doing. Try not to harp on you too hard here. But another issue with assurance of salvation is this. Another common cause is an inconsistent walk in life. With grief and sorrow, 
I feel constrained to say, this is what Ryle says, I fear nothing in this day more frequently prevents men attaining an assured hope than this. Inconsistency of life is utterly destructive of great peace of heart. The two things are incompatible. They cannot go together. If you must keep your besetting sins and cannot make up your minds to give them up, if you shrink from cutting off the right hand and plucking out the right eye when required, I will engage, you shall have no assurance. A vacillating walk, a backwardness to take a bold and decided line, a readiness to conform to the world, a hesitating witness for Christ, a lingering tone of profession, all these make up a sure recipe for bringing a blight upon the garden of your soul. It is vain to suppose you will feel assured and persuaded of your pardon and peace unless you count all God's commandments concerning all things to be right and hate every sin, whether great or small. Now, here's here's how I've seen this work itself out. I've seen it work itself out in this way. Those who struggle with deep assurance of their salvation oftentimes are allowing the besetting sins, their proclivity to sin, to warp their understanding of the gospel. In, In a way... I'll just say it like this. What are you going to do, fire me? Um, you know, if a guy is addicted to internet pornography, he's going to doubt his, yeah, ooh, you know, he's going to doubt his salvation. If somebody is struggling with alcoholism and they're not willing to get help, they're going to struggle with their salvation. If someone has a propensity and a characteristic to be angry all the time, and their anger is overruling their life, they will doubt their assurance of salvation. The besetting sin that is not cut off at the knees will cause us to doubt. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that your peace, the joy and the cheerfulness that you go about obeying the commandments of God will be hindered by this besetting sin. And brothers and sisters, I want deeply that you would enjoy the peace and joy for your souls. The confession um, back in 18.4, chapter 18, verse 4, it actually says, um, with regard to this, you know, um, true believers may have their assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways as by negligence in preserving it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit by some sudden or violent temptation. I mean, I think that that's what we see. Yet true believers are never completely deprived of the seed of God and the life of faith, that love for Christ and fellow believers, that sincerity of heart and conscience concerning duty, out of which by the operation of the spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair. There is this idea and this aspect of our assurance that, that even if you, if you are in Christ, the seed of assurance is there, but what I want within us is I want that seed to grow and to blossom. F.F. Bruce said this, the fruit of the love of God comes into full bloom with our obedience. First John um, chapter 2 says, as we continue to, to look through this in chapter five or verse five, it says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. So there's this idea that our obedience 
um, actually flows out of our love of God. And in verse 6, it says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So there's this, this um, really this promise and this um, challenge to us that if we are going to love God, we will obey his commandments and we will walk like Jesus walked. Now, I don't want you to think that walking like Jesus walked meant that you have to go to Israel and walk in the same steps of Jesus, right? Where would Jesus wore, look like Jesus, those kind of things. But it does mean this, that we walk with compassion, the compassion of Christ towards others. It means that we actually have the truth of Christ, that we, we bring the truth to bear in all situations in our life. And that we have the obedience of Christ who thought about his father's plan more than his own plan and lived a life of self-sacrifice for the sake of the glory of another and then went to the cross with the hope of glory and the love of the father in his mind. So to walk as Christ, to walk as Jesus, means that we study Jesus and we abide with him. I mean, this is, this is John 15 language. If one other scripture I want to show you. John chapter 15. Again, John's writing in 1 John, but in John 15, when he talks about abiding in Christ, notice what he says, um, and this is this famous passage. He says, Abide in me, and, and, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, and, and by abiding, what he means is resting, relying, rejoicing, remaining in Christ. That's what he means by those things, right? Being connected to Jesus. And he says, I want you to be connected. And then he says about the love of God in verse 10, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And you're like, that's great, Jesus. How do I abide in your love? And he tells you, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's this, this aspect of the obedience, the cheerfulness of pursuing the commands of God, which should actually well up joy within us. Not because we think that we're earning our salvation, but because we want to see our Father's smiling face upon us. One of the glories of um, having small children is is watching them learn how to walk, right? Like especially with your first couple. Because you, you just really want, by the, the, by the fourth child, you're pushing them down because you know what that means. You know, they'll, they'll start getting into stuff, right? First couple, Benjamin and Hannah were like, come on guys, walk, walk. By William, we're like, William, you don't need to walk yet. You just sit in that seat. You're fine, bud. Um, but, but there's, here's what I, when, when we're trying to get our young kids to walk towards us, we're urging them to obey us. And as they begin to take a step towards their father and mother, what I often see is great delight in their eyes because they know that they are doing something that their father and mother want them to do. And, and, and the beauty of the obedience of that small child is they get to be wrapped up into the arms of their father. A few faltering steps and we swoop down and pick the child up and embrace that child in the love that we, and the joy that the child has at the obedience of the command is what I want for myself and what I want for you. Because that leads 
to the assurance of our salvation, the bolstering of our faith. And if you are around Jesus, if you are modeling your life after Jesus, if you are pursuing and abiding in Christ, you will be transformed by the power of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for this appetizer of the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And Father, we pray, Lord, that you would give us a great love and affection. A love and affection and a a deep faith that causes us to obey your commandments and to love you. So, Father, help us. Help us to trust and believe and to be assured of our salvation. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.